1: This is Lynn Perkins of the History of the Ottoman Empire podcast. My aim is to tell the history of the Ottomans from their humble tribal origins in northeast Anatolia, to its imperial heights in the 15th and 16th centuries, and to its fall in the early 20th century. You can find the History of the Ottoman Empire on iTunes, SoundCloud, and coming very soon to Stitcher. Also, please check out the website at thehistoryoftheottomanempire.squarespace.com. And now to the Eastern Border Podcast, which I am thoroughly enjoying. Kristop's insider perspective of the history and politics of Eastern Europe, Russia, and the former Soviet Union helps those who grew up in the United States, like myself, to obtain a greater understanding of the region and its people. For example, who knew that Latvia was such a beer-loving country? Another reason to love its people. So please enjoy the Eastern Border Podcast, and when you have finished, Please give the history of the Ottoman Empire a listen. Thank you very much.
0: Greetings, comrades. Welcome to the Eastern Border, and Merry Christmas to you all. In this last special episode of the year... I'll be answering our listener questions in the order from the easiest to answer to the hardest, which will nicely tie into a segment about how the Christmas and the winter holidays in general were doing in the Soviet Union, which is going to be really, really dark, so let's have some fun first, shall we? And fun means announcements. First off, in hindsight... I should have probably announced about my December campaign of giving Soviet pins to top commenters and real Soviet medals to donators in an audio form, and not just given an overly large description of this in my previous show notes, which people most likely didn't even read. And we, from the eastern border, actually sent some out to people. Five people, actually. The lucky people are Stephanie Elaine from the Drinking Liberally organization, and you should definitely check that political organization out if you're a liberal person, and even if you're not, as I personally consider myself to be a quite conservative guy, at least by Latvian standards, but they do make some good points about liberalism and are really nice, intelligent people in general. Next, Nicholas and Erez from the Foreign Policy Club, and Daryl, the excellent host of Martyrmaid podcast. And, of course... We sent some to our most dedicated fan, Dave, who's been here since the very first episode, and I have no idea how he even found our podcast back then. Have an awesome Christmas, Dave! Now, I won't tell exactly what they got, because due to the fact that I'm literally on the other side of the planet from them, they haven't received their gifts yet, as of the recording of this podcast, and I don't want to spoil the surprise of what they're getting. But if you missed out and wanted to participate in this campaign, then it's only my fault and I'm really, really sorry. But don't worry, because the pins and medals aren't going anywhere, we have a lot more of them, and they'll definitely will be coming back in the future, so you'll be able to get them if you want to. Secondly, we have acquired something really awesome. So, I'm proud to announce our next campaign. We have Khrushchev era Soviet paper money bills. 5, 25, and 100 rubles, all printed in 1961. They are in excellent condition, and you can see them in the photo attached to this post on our website, theeasternborder.lv, or on our Facebook page, and on our Twitter account, at Border. What's going to happen is that we'll be collecting the names of the people who donate to the show in the following three months, January through March. And at the end of that period, three of the people who've donated to the show will get sent one bill each. Thirdly, thirdly, I'm still waiting for that getting-a-foreign-writing-job Christmas miracle. So your best support for the show would actually be sending us an email with some nice writing-related job opening, which I could do through the internet. If that would happen, the episodes would come out much more often. But enough with announcements. On with the questions, in the order from those that can be answered quickly, to those that will take more time. I have to warn you, some of them are modern politics related, and not USSR history. But that's completely fine by me, as I haven't managed to deliver a political episode this year anyways, but I really promised one in the intro. They also have a varying degree of seriousness, but I did my best to answer all of them, as there weren't that many. Let's start then. Paul Derren, the person who left us our, so far, only Stitcher review, and we're thankful that it's five stars, wanted to know about my accent and is this intentional? No, that's just how I talk, really. And now I'm a bit ashamed because my voice and pronunciation of things must sound weird to my native English-speaking listeners. Firstly, I don't have much other opportunities to actually speak in English besides this podcast. Secondly, I was taught British English at school, but I learned to be fluent in it by spending six months with a dictionary in hand reading Tolkien's The Two Towers book, as I just had seen The Fellowship of the Ring, and I wanted to know what happened next. And then, the whole internet talks US English, so those different things have mixed in my head as well, as I can't really tell the difference not being a native speaker myself. If it makes you feel better, you can call it USSR English or something, But I'm doing my best, and I hope that you all can understand me, and I hope that my English is actually gonna improve and I'm gonna lose this silly accent. Or if you like it, then I hope I won't. Jared Offenberg wants to know, Hey, if I'm ever in Latvia, can I sleep on your couch? Yes. Yes, you can. That goes out to all of you, actually. Beer, hanging out with the Eastern Border crew, and a free tour around Riga is also included in the offer. You wouldn't get a better tour around these parts, even if you'd pay for it. Might even go in the Mike Duncan's footsteps and organize a tour at some point. But otherwise, as long as you let us know beforehand, we'll do our best to accommodate any of you guys, should you choose to come over here and have some fun. Oh, and talking about beer. Lin, from the excellent Ottoman Empire podcast, who did today's intro, mentioned... ...in the intro, as a surprising fact that we love beer here instead of vodka. I'd like to comment on that. I thought that it was so obvious, I doubt I've even mentioned this fact. Being ruled over by landed German nobility for 700 years does that to you. And beer is much more popular than vodka here. Also, it's good beer that we have here. Not even counting all the excellent craft beer from all of our microbreweries, Even our commercially made beer is considered to be very good, on the level of the best Czech and German beers, and better than anything that's made in Denmark or Sweden, as told to me by the very few foreigners that I've met here in my life. Vodka is popular among the Russian population, sure, but beer is king, even among them. We even have a special beer-drinking-and-cheese-eating holiday, even, you know. Listener Alexander McKeever asked, What countries does Latvia have the best relations with? Well, obviously those would be Estonia and Lithuania, our historical friends and neighbors. I mean, Estonian president Tomas Ilves' new wife is Latvian, even. And Lithuanians are our Baltic brothers and vote for us in Eurovision. Then there's Sweden, because there is a lot of Swedish investment here, and Poland, because they were in this USSR mess together with us, being in their sphere of influence and very, very Soviet. We have Polish minority schools here, and their people in a poll voted that of course Polish military should support the Baltics if we would be invaded. They're like our bigger, meaner, athletic cousin that's really nice to us. And then, at least on the official level, our USA relationships have been surprisingly good lately. Oh, and for a while, we were the best friends with the Catalonian separatists in Spain, because of a mistakenly understood Twitter post by our prime minister at the time, where he supposedly officially supported their independence. He even got called to the Spanish embassy to deliver some explanations. Then, it turned out he really didn't say that, and Catalonians started hating our guts. Nick Giuliano wants to know how confident is the average Latvian in NATO's guarantees and the United States. Well, not very, but it's improving we quite sure that Norway and Poland would defend us. The USA? Well, when all the Ukrainian crisis started, there were no US military stationed there. Our army didn't have tanks, or much in the way of advanced technology, except combat engineers. A friend who works in the Norwegian military told me that Latvian sappers are among the best he's ever seen, and our ministry data confirms that we're really specializing in combat engineering and sapper duty, as part of NATO forces, to be useful even with a small budget. Anyway, we were in a bad shape in general, and there was a feeling the USA would totally abandon us, as they probably wouldn't want to go to war over Latvia, and that would be the end of NATO. But things have changed. We do have USA tanks and other military technology here now. We have NATO quick response squads here, and they're constantly drilling with our soldiers to learn how to cooperate. And, on the political level, USA politicians in recent times have stated that the fifth article is important, and that, yes, Latvia and the Baltic states would be protected. So, the general mood is improving here. Personally, I think that it depends on the mood of the United States citizens of the time if such a time would come. If the people will not want to get involved in the war, then the USA will, most likely, stay at home and toss some diplomatic stuff around not to get involved. And I have no idea over here how the most of the USA people feel about waging war over the independence of some small country in the Baltics. But, at least, I've got the confidence that a certain Atlanta-based person will come over with his redneck friends and a lot of guns. (laughs) That warms up my mood a bit. Kiernan Majerus Collins... Sent me a picture of a potato, and asked, does that trigger me? No, it doesn't. (laughs) We actually really like potato jokes here, and Latvian jokes in general. Hey, we're so small that it's national news whenever Latvia is mentioned somewhere. All of Latvia are New York Knicks fans by now, because of Porzingis, and that's how you properly pronounce his surname. Getting Getting up at night to watch their games, even though hockey is the number one sport here. And remember how we voted Zemgus-Girgensons in the NHL All-Stars game? Yeah, that was huge here. We've also voted Riga in the top cities in the Monopoly World Edition. Because of our extremely fast and cheap internet. And because all such online votes, where we can vote for something Latvia-related, gets our big media attention, you can be sure that if there's an online vote with Latvia-related thing in it, somehow it's probably going to win. What about the jokes? Here's one. Knock, knock. Who's there? A Latvian. Latvian who? Please open. It's cold. Also dark. Also very. Door never open. Latvian die. Such is life. Next, we have two questions by Eris Bitten. I'll start with a serious one, which is also a two-parter by itself. What do you think Latvia's role will be in this coming migrant crisis? And, given the Soviet Union's history, how do you think the Russian involvement in Syria will work out? Latvia and the migrant crisis, oh boy. Well, we're gonna have to take some migrants in, but the amount is really small when compared to other countries. We're probably going to handle it terribly here, seeing as our government has been collapsed for about a week or so now, ...by the recording of this show, and they're promising that a new coalition and a new government will be up only in January. No, no, don't worry too much. It's a bit like your government shutdown... ...I'm talking to Americans here... ...but except we'll actually get a new government at the end of it. Oh, and our government collapsed because the ruling party's leader, Solvit Abolten, decided that she didn't like the current prime minister, who was of her own party and basically forced her, limdot straujuma out, due to political intriguing. We have a lot of women politicians in important positions here, just in case, so it's not weird in any way or form. So Latvia's role in the migrant crisis will probably be not to collapse again, I think. But I wouldn't bet my money on it. On not collapsing, that is. Now we're getting into the weeds. Russia's involvement in Syria, that's a power play, I think. The situation reminds me of Grand Strategy Games by Paradox. There's a prestige statistic for countries or rulers there, depends on which one you play, which grants various bonuses, and Russia's trying to get that score up by acting tough. They really, really want more naval bases in the Mediterranean, and they want to show the rest of the world that they're a superpower. But it's still Russia. Their army is still mostly conscripts with few professionals, It's going to go fine for a while, until, at some point, somewhere, someone makes a terrible mistake. Either is drunk at his position, or does something crazy or the like. And the longer they're there, the bigger the chances are of that happening and media finding out. I think that ISIS will be crushed, but the diplomacy game will then determine the future of Assad and Syria after that. And, whomever crushes ISIS has more prestige, thus more say in what happens in the region after that. So it's a race by default, and Russia's on their own separate disaster clock. That's why they're also striking anti-Assad's rebels, because that would strengthen their position at the table if USA and the coalition takes ISIS down first. Remember, Russia's generals were colonels in the USSR times. Army colonels. Just as Putin was a KGB colonel. And Putin has less say in the Russia's army than you might think, as he comes from the KGB power bloc. And, if you have listened to this podcast for a while, then, by now, you should already know about the army and KGB rivalry in the USSR. Same rivals, more powerful positions, slightly different country. So, Putin has to be quick about Syria if he wants to achieve something. Either this is over in 2016... Or we'll see some truly weird things happening. And... I wouldn't want that. And the less serious question by Erez. What's your favorite Jewish conspiracy theory, and how much do you love us? Ah, that's a good one, actually. He got his pins for this one. My favorite conspiracy is the one that my grandparents still believe in. It's that the Jewish doctors who were treating Stalin actually killed him. As before 1937... Two of the most overrepresented ethnic groups in Cheka, Ceca and Kavajde, what became KGB, were Jews and Latvians. That was because of various reasons which I'll definitely discuss in the future episodes, but what's important is that Stalin, in his Great Purge, made an ethnic cleansing of the USSR administrative apparatus as well. Many Latvians, Jews, Poles, and others were killed, their prosecution papers often stating only their nationality as their crime. I promised photos of said, said documents in the episode discussing this matter in detail. So, it was a firmly held belief that as most of the leading doctors in the USSR were of Jewish ethnicity, and as they were treating Stalin personally, that they had poisoned him. And don't get me wrong, that isn't a bad conspiracy. My grandparents always told me to treat Jews nicely when I was a kid, especially... "...because they killed Stalin, Jews freed us from that murdering bastard, so you better be nice to them." Then again, we've always liked Jews. They were second-rate citizens in the Russian Empire in general, but the Baltic region had a lot of autonomy and they weren't as persecuted here, so a lot of them moved here. And, as we, Latvians, had up until 1918, until we got our own independent country, been second-rate citizens ourselves here... We saw Jews as our allies and friends. We have this national play, Skrotrdins Silmachos, written in late 19th century, which is played at our largest theatre each year and is extremely popular. It's like a play that every Latvian must see in his life, preferably multiple times, or he's not a real Latvian even. Well, we have three Jewish characters in that play. No Russians, no Germans, just Latvians and three Jewish merchants. Sure, the Jews are quite stereotypical, but they're treated nicely, have their own little subplot about love, and about what the young generation is doing, and with the permission of the old one, and are among the good guys of the story in general. And during the Nazi occupation, we didn't have much in the way of genocide here. Not at least done by Latvians. Sure, the occupational forces did really terrible things, And some ultra-radical Latvians who wanted to brown-nose their way up in the Nazi party also did some killings. But the general population just didn't understand this concept of killing Jews because Jews. It was neither popular nor accepted as a norm. And the Jews remembered this. As my own family was saved from being sent to a gulag in 1945 by a Jew... Who warned, my, who warned my grandmother's family that they were on the list, as her father was a Lutheran preacher. So, they managed to move to another town where nobody knew them. In the Soviet era, again, relationships were quite friendly. Because killed Stalin, obviously. Also, I have to take note here that during the Nazi occupation, many Jews fled to the USSR together with the Red Army, as they, quite frankly, were seeing what's happening in Europe. But back to the USSR times. The relations were quite friendly, again, because of stereotypes. I have talked about this before, but I'll repeat it. Sure, we saw Jews as sneaky, crafty folk who knew the arts of nepotism and thieving from the government. But in the USSR, those were seen as good things, vital to your own survival, so Jews were seen just as a bit ethnically better at whatever everyone else was doing. Right now, well, right now I don't think anyone cares about ethnicity.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge
0: you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at slash switch.
1: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Did these hear anymore? At least, not about Jews, or for that matter. As I haven't studied the Latvian-Jewish relationships after the fall of the USSR. But then again, we haven't had any anti-Semitic crimes in Latvia for a very, very long time either. So I suppose that it's quite okay. Although, I do have to mention that, that for some weird reason, it's the local Jews and local leaders of the Jewish population that are currently the leaders of the pro-Russian movement here in Latvia, namely Tatjana Zdanoka, which also manages to be a Euro-parliament deputy, and Yakov Plinner. They are Russian-speaking, but they're not Russian, they're Jewish, but they're the most radical pro-Russia people we have here in these parts, which might be weird, as they're also really, really Soviet and communistic. And here come the two big questions. They tie into today's narrative theme about Christmas, so I hope to, at least partially, answer them with the rest of this episode. But those two subjects will definitely get a whole episode dedicated to each of them in the future. They're extremely huge subjects, and also, I believe them to be interesting enough just to talk about them for a whole episode. The big two are, then, by Michael Bladgett. Can you share information about the history of the Lutheran Church in Latvia? And by our excellent comrade Dave, I'm wondering what it was like as a child in the Soviet era. What toys, if any, were considered desirable? What did children do for fun? As you can see, it's literally impossible to cover all of this in this episode. So, let me just kind of unite the partial answers that I give that I can give here and talk about Christmas in the USSR. But, again, I promise an episode for each of these subjects next year. That would be my New Year's resolution, if we look at it like that. First off, before it gets really bleak and terrible, I'd like to start with a non-Soviet thing, which I promised in the last episode. It also ties into this story, don't worry. Now... Although evergreen plants were always associated with winter solstice celebrations in the Nordic and Germanic cultures, the first Christmas tree, in the modern sense, decorated with sweets and candy and gifts beneath them, the ones you party with with and around with, and sit next to with your family, the modern Christmas tree, not the paganic version of it, is actually a German Renaissance merchant town tradition. And Riga was one of the most prominent German merchant towns at the time and one of the major players in the Hanseatic League. It also hosted the guild hall of the Brotherhood of Blackheads, an important association of unmarried merchants, ship owners and foreigners that operated in Livonia, which is modern-day Latvia and Estonia. Unmarried men with quite a lot of money at their disposal like to have fun, possibly more than everyone else, especially in winter. So they did. The first documented evidence of these modern, decorated trees associated with Christmas Day is the tree set up in Riga Blackhead's Hall in 1441, with candy and other sweets put in it for the local children and apprentices to enjoy, with gifts being put near it and the party held around it. Later, in 1584, the pastor and chronicler Baltazar Russov, in his... Chronica der Provinz Lifland wrote of an already established tradition of setting up a decorated spruce at the market square, where the young men <clears throat> quote, went with a flock of maidens and women, first sang and danced there, and then set the tree aflame. He wrote about it because it was new and unseen elsewhere. As far as this podcast is concerned, the modern Christmas tree is a Latvian tradition. We even have a memorial plaque here in Riga for the first decorated Christmas tree ever. So, if you're decorating your Christmas tree and putting presents somewhere near it, even if you're just sitting next to one, listening to the show, maybe together with your family, you're welcome. You can't take that away from me. For the reasons to follow next. Christmas tree just means so, so much in Latvia. And now, I have to talk about the Orthodox tradition a bit. The Christmas tree gained popularity in Russia only in 1817, when one was gifted for Christmas to the Tsar Nicholas I by his native German wife Alexandra. Obviously, it became extremely popular, and the sale of Christmas trees to the wealthier city population became a major source of side income for the Russian peasantry. The Orthodox Church adopted the tradition, and it became a staple, and was also celebrated on the 25th of December with the rest of the world. But, with the arrival of the October Revolution, all of this started to disappear. Firstly, as Russia was still living by the old Julian calendar, and not the Gregorian one, by the 1917, it was lagging 13 days back from the most of the world. That is why the October Revolution actually happened at the 7th of November by the modern calendar, but why it's still called the October Revolution, as it was still October in Russia. So, the new Bolshevik-usurbed government made the shift to the Gregorian calendar as one of their priorities. Obviously, as they moved the calendar 13 days forward in one day, they decided to move important religious celebrations forward as well, so to make it harder for people to follow their orthodox traditions, as the Bolshevik party was atheistic and didn't like the idea of religious celebrations at all. But the old church adapted, and now... It's a specifically Russian Orthodox tradition, which is why Christmas is, even now, celebrated in Russia in the 7th of January. Other dates were later adapted back, but this one and Easter, mind you, which was also moved, stayed in these new dates. This moving of dates didn't deter people from celebrating Christmas much, so the Bolsheviks decided to transform it into a decidedly children's celebration and to remove the religious context from it as much as possible. In 1918, the famous Russian author Maxim Gorky, who later escaped to Sorrento from the Soviet Union, to the Italy, by the way, pronounced the book (coughs) Little Spruce, where the best governmental artists illustrated stories by writers such as Koren Chukovsky, Alexander Tolstoy, Sasha Chorny, and Maxim Gorky himself. Now, on the cover of the book, there's a Santa together with children around a decorated spruce tree with the famous six-sided Jewish star on top of it. In later editions of the book, which, were, which was reprinted often, the six-sided star was replaced by a red five, five-pointed Soviet one. No decorations on the tree or anything like that whatsoever. The book contains stories about revolutionary Bolshevik leaders, playing with children and giving them sweets in winter, as a nice tradition with no mention of why is it celebrated and what's with the tree or the star or whatever. Same happened with the books like Lenin and Kids and other tales about sort of Christmas, sort of Christmas, where USSR's famous people at the time, which happened to be revolutionary leaders and the political elite, would just come and play with kids just to make them happy. In the winter, without ever mentioning even the name of Christmas, families, at the time as it was as civil war was raging throughout the USSR, weren't annihilated by mass shootings. Lenin liked those as much as talented, by the way, weren't annihilated by being sent to fight off in the civil war without proper equipment or hadn't died of typhus or influenza, continued to decorate the Christmas tree and celebrate the old style Christmas. The tree being a beacon of light, a thread that somehow connected them to the orderly and organized past, in stark comparison with the chaos of the revolution and the new Bolshevik era. The sales of Christmas trees in the USSR continued until 1924. In 1922, as a part of the anti-religious propaganda, for a couple of years the party tried to replace Christmas with something more Soviet, and officially... The country celebrated the <clears throat> Communistic Union celebration. There were a lot of events associated with the celebration. Mostly all sorts of reports about fulfilling the plan, official debates about political and scientific achievements of the USSR, public readings of propaganda speeches which criticized the bourgeoisie Christmas, and the like. For those few years, the decorated tree survived, but it wasn't called the Christmas tree anymore. It was the Communistic Union tree now. But, of course, the common people completely ignored all of this stuff as well, and, in spite of persecutions, continued to celebrate Christmas as they had always done before. In 1924, the party started a massive anti-Christmas campaign throughout, throughout the country. The Christmas tree became a symbol of the other, wrong, capitalistic worldview, and as such was completely forbidden in 1929, together with celebrating Christmas as a whole. Even a popular, local, and completely non-religious and innocent Christmas song Diles or A Christmas Tree Was Born in the Forest was completely forbidden from being played as it was deemed to be a foul remnant of the capitalist era. The song was written in 1905 by a Jewish a landed Russian nobility member, Raisa Gedroits. At this time, the party also experimented with moving to a constant seven-day work week for a while as well. Canceling all celebrations except the Soviet ones completely, which included celebrating the new year. All of this was accompanied by a massive anti-religious campaign. Tons of atheistic propaganda, persecution of priests and religious people, prohibition of religion on the official level, and all the celebrations associated with religion in some way. All religions, by the way. This didn't only hurt the Christians, but all the Muslims and Jews and everyone else but the Orthodox Christians were hit the hardest, as that was the largest religious group in the USSR at the time. You could go to prison or be sent to Gulag for going to a church at the time. All of the churches in the USSR were robbed of any valuables that they had in them, and cemeteries, monasteries, and other religious buildings were mostly rebuilt, repurposed, or destroyed. All of this happened in the Baltics in 1940 as well. ...after we were occupied by the USSR and forced to join. Still, the people endured. We're tough folk in these parts, you know. They continued to celebrate Christmas and Easter secretly at their homes... ...holding on to the traditions as much as they could. My grand-grandfather spoke about him before in this show. He was a German-born Lutheran preacher who stayed in the USSR. Grandmother has told me that they always celebrated Christmas even though KGB people were walking around and checking if people were doing just that. It was a form of rebellion, a form of resistance. As my grandmother said to me when I was a kid, back then, looking at the Christmas tree with our curtains closed and in secret, we truly understood what the Bible quote, a light shining in darkness and the darkness engulfs it not, means. And we hoped it would never go out. But... Seeing as the celebration was still happening, the Soviet government tried to usurp the Christmas symbols once again. This was a true all-out war on Christmas, on both physical and psychological level. Which makes me quite worried about that some some shops just not putting on Christmas decorations, or just calling them holidays to respect other religion, religions, that that gets called war on Christmas. No, people. This was War on Christmas. Starting from the 1935, they rehabilitated the tree. Except it was the New Year's tree now, as Christmas were officially dead. Saint Nick became Grandfather Frost, or Diedmaroz, and the grandfather part was especially accented, as the party stated that he's the spiritual grandfather of all the Soviet children. He also gained a wife, snegurochka which technically translates as Snow White, but has absolutely nothing to do with the fairy tale. It's a beautiful young woman, completely made of snow and ice, who's nice to children, and is Died Moroz's wife. And there were decorations and massive parties in Moscow and Leningrad. But the decorations weren't what you'd think, no, 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 no. In this Soviet New Year, there were tractors, oil rigs, satellites, and rockets hanging on the tree together with bunnies, bears, and other fluffy animals. In 1947, the New Year's Eve became an official celebration, and in 1954, in Kremlin Square, the first official New Year's party for both adults and children was held. This New Year's celebration was intended to transform the thinking about the tree as a symbol of the past, of the time before the USSR, to one where it would stand in for the bright, communistic future. The celebration is fully ide- ideologized. Over here, it's traditional that kids have to sing a song or recount a poem for each gift that they receive in Christmas. So, with this New Year's Soviet party, of course the poems were about how Stalin and Lenin brought us the bright future and about how my dad is awesome, he exceeded the plan. Ironically, the main song publicly was the earlier forbidden "Lisura urodziles as the tree now was kind of okay. But the people endured. Sure, they parted on the New Year's Eve, that was a holiday. But throughout the USSR, they still celebrated Christmas at home. Over time, the persecutions became less apparent. Uh, you weren't sent to gulags anymore or in prison if you were found out that you if it was found out that you celebrate Christmas or other religious holidays or just go to church in general. But still there were people from the Communistic Party's youth organization stationed at the door of every church on every Sunday and at every celebration, just to note down which members of the communistic party or the youth, youth organization go to the church. And then you could get in real trouble at your workplace, like your salary would be cut for a while, you'd lose out on your premium, you'd be publicly shamed. They really liked public shamings. So they, called, they called them the comrade's court. If you were a religious person and actually liked going to church and observed all these things, then you probably would end up in a dead-end job with no career prospect whatsoever. So, you still had to be really, really careful. Over time, as people started caring less and less about the Soviet government, as the Soviet government became less and less capable of actually persecuting anyone and wanted to do less and less, the Christmas thing and all the prohibition thing became a bit less violent in the 80s, there were some families who actually started celebrating Christmas openly. They ran into a lot of trouble, of course, but the sentiment of the time was that other people would just look over them and ask questions, as it was perestroika by then. They would ask questions of, but why? If they're good communistic citizens, why should they be prohibited from from believing in something? Sure, the USSR was officially atheistic, but technically... Technically, there was this freedom of religion clause written in the constitution. Well, one of the constitutions. They had many of them during the Soviet era. But yeah, it became more and more laxed, but it never really went away. Everyone just couldn't do it. Because you could still get in trouble with your job, even as late as 88, 89, just before the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was getting getting easier, sure, the social norm was that you had to really hide your religious beliefs, whatever they may be, and that you had to hide that you're celebrating any religious any religious festivities whatsoever over here in the Baltics. by the way, we always continued celebrating Christmas in the twenty fifth of December and in Russia in the seventh of January. It's weird because all these dates, although we lived in the same Soviet Union. They just stayed the same, because we are over here mostly Lutheran, with some Catholics mixed in, and some Orthodox. But still, same country, two separate dates where to hide at your home and try to celebrate Christmas. In some mixed families, they even celebrated it on both dates. And it's still common to keep your Christmas tree up until the 7th, because what if some of your Russian friends come to visit? I haven't got into the toys at all, or the Lutheran church, really. Those questions will have to remain for some other time, and I hope that Dave and Michael shall forgive me. But that's about it for this show. I'm really happy for you who are listening to this show right now. I can truly call you comrades. And I'm glad that what I do has any meaning to you people. This show can sometimes be funny, and other times become really, really bleak and sad. Oh boy, I I could barely keep myself from crying remembering all these uh, Christmas religious persecutions... But that—that that was the life in the USSR. The other side of the Cold War. If I don't tell these stories to someone, they will die. The stories of the common people, which will not get written in the history books. It's a form of preservation, I think—a form of the oral tradition of the history. And I'm thankful to everyone who listens, thankful to everyone who follows us on Facebook, Twitter, or comments here, thankful to those who support this show by donating. There is a saying in the Soviet Army: "We should have presented trust and loyalty to one's comrade." I would go scouting with you. And so I would. If there is one thing that you should maybe take away from this show, it's that don't take the Christmas tree away from Latvians. It's a light shining in darkness, a symbol of endurance, a symbol of the fact that we outlasted the USSR, that we survived as a people and grew better and stronger. That the light. That the light did not go out, that we continued celebrating Christmas and we persevered throughout all these difficulties. Merry Christmas, (laughs) y'all!